Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation 17. Let me remind you to pick up the paper in the lobby on an overview of the book of Revelation. It outlines the book in chapter contents and uh, those headings. And we've just finished chapter 15 and 16 that describe the pouring out of the seven bowls or vials of God's wrath upon the earth during the second half of the seven years of tribulation. What happens next after that is picked up in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11. If you look over there, you'll see that Jesus is returning at that point to defeat his enemies at the final battle in the campaign called Armageddon. 1911, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and him that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And uh, so that chronologically is what's taking place, but in Revelation 17 and 18, we're informed about the destruction of Babylon. These two chapters don't fit into the, the book of Revelation in the timeline of events. We've seen that before. And we've called those parenthetical passages. Uh, John is simply writing about what God is revealing to him, and as it is revealed, he writes. And so some of the things are chronological and some are not. Um, here, uh, we have these chapters that give us an overall picture of the evil of the world in the end times. Um, the one world anti-God religion the one world anti-God political kingdom or system. They're both called Babylon. John Walvoord writes in the Bible Knowledge Commentary on this, uh, in this part of the commentary on, on Revelation, that Bab Babylon is referred to about 300 times in the Bible. It's occasionally viewed as a satanic religious program opposing the true worship of God but primarily, it is viewed as a political power with a great city bearing the name Babylon as its capital. The end times brings together these two major lines of truth about Babylon and indicate God's final judgment on it. Again, that's a quote from John Walvoord. So chapter 17 deals primarily with religious Babylon, how God will bring it to destruction. And so we've titled the message tonight, The End of a One-World Religion. Chapter 18 will deal more with political Babylon and the powerful one-world government that will also be destroyed. And that will be a time of great rejoicing for God's people when the enemy is finally cast down. Several have given convincing arguments about what the final one-world religion or church will be. Some say Babylon is Rome, and we have the city of seven hills that we'll cover tonight. And, and so they conclude it must be Roman Catholicism that's, that's this one world re religious system. Others say Babylon is in Iraq, and uh, the, so the, the religion must be Islam. There are other ideas that people have proponed, have, have given for the New Age movement being that religion or Satanism or even a religion that hasn't been invented yet. Uh, this chapter will give us some, we're not going to tell which it is, we don't know, I don't know. Uh, maybe you do and that's great, but uh, the chapter does give us some specifics, five that I'd like to just share before we get into the verse-by-verse -verse, uh, study. 
Uh, it tells us key elements about this religion. It will be a universal church. Second, it will have an intoxicating influence on world leaders. They will be drunk with the power, with the wealth of this system, this religion. Third, it will have a connection to politics. There will be an alliance between this religious church and the state. Fourth, as we see in verse 6, the false religion will be drunk with the blood of saints, either martyred, true believers, or uh, this, this drunkenness, something that's never satisfied. Fifth, the one world religion will lose favor with the Antichrist, who will want everyone to worship only him. And so uh, Walvard thinks it's halfway through the, the tribulation at that three and a half mark, the uh, the abomination of desolation, that's when people will turn from this false religion to worshiping the Antichrist. Well, chapter 17 is written in three paragraphs, so that makes it easy to outline. We'll use those natural divisions for our three points tonight, Babylon, the beast, and the battle. Uh, first, Babylon. John is invited to see what kind of judgment comes upon the evil woman in verse 1. And there came... One of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, so it's talking, reflecting back on those last two chapters that we've been in, uh, 15 and 16, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. So this angel invites John to uh, come and see how, uh, how God's judgment will be poured out. Uh, come, and, come hither and I will show thee. It's interesting, that parallels with the, with the call that John will hear in Revelation 21.9, come hither and I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. That's much more fun to go to a wedding than it would be to go to this first invitation. This is an invitation to uh, the counterfeit of the true bride. Uh, the lamb's wife is... is one that believers look forward to hearing because we are the lamb's wife, we are the bride. Custer writes, this harlot is the vile counterfeit of the true people of God. So this come hither to see the punishment on those who follow that counterfeit religion. Notice this immoral woman is symbolic of religious Babylon. She's called the great, the Greek word is porne from pornos, which means a fornicator. Here it's the feminine, which refer, would refer to a harlot. There's only one true faith, and all other religions are substitutes of that true faith. They're perversions of that faith of truth. And so this woman is a perversion of true religion. The many waters here are the inhabitants of the earth. At the end of the chapter, we'll have some explanations where John is told the meanings of these uh, different um, elements of chapter 17. So they're identified specifically down in verse 15 as people groups, multitudes, nations, and tongues, or uh, language groups. The false, well, verse 2, the false religion of Babylon has attracted the kingdoms of the earth. 
Verse 2, with whom, that is with that harlot, the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Remember, John is writing, and we said this last time, in the prophetic perfect tense. Um, the perfect have committed fornication, have been made drunk, something that uh, has, has, looks like it's already happened, but it's so certain in a prophecy that it is looked at as something that's already taken place. So that uh, the whole book is written that way, in, a, in that prophetic perfect tense. Well, the name Babel suggests confusion. You remember the Tower of Babel. And I can't understand the marketing strategy of a language teaching uh, 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 study system that calls itself Babel, but in a way I guess I can. In Genesis 11.9, uh, therefore, is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And so that word Babel is actually confusion. Later, it's referred to or applied to the city of Babylon which itself has a long history dating back 3,000 years before Christ. Babylon was a real place. It was the ancient empire of, of, with, with a false religion. A few years after King Solomon's reign, Israel became a divided kingdom. You remember the northern tribes were carried away by the Assyrians into Assyrian captivity. And the southern tribes, called Judah, were carried away into the Babylonian captivity. You can read about what that was like for Israel in Old Testament texts, Psalm 137 probably being the most uh, clear, where they say, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. You can only imagine what that would have been like. They, they write, we hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, that is in Babylon. For there... For there they, they that carried us away captive required us of us a song. And they that want wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they reply, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? So that was Babylon. The destruction of Babylon was prophesied by Isaiah. And again, maybe the, uh, one of the, the key prophecies is in chapter 13. And in that chapter, he's looking ahead, not just to Babylon that, that Israel knew, but to this future Babylon that we're reading about tonight. Isaiah 13, 1 says, The burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see. Verses 4 to 6, A noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of great, a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdom of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. And down in verse 11 of that same chapter, Isaiah 13, And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. So that uh, this destruction, Isaiah has prophesied 700 years before Christ was born. Well, the angel tells John that the kingdoms of the earth will follow this final false religion. It will be a one-world religion. And he writes, as men who are in a drunken stupor, they follow 
without thinking, without reasoning, this false religion. We come to verses 3 to 6, and, and John sees a vision. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of the abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead there was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. The angel carried John away, it says, in the spirit. That is John's spirit. He wasn't physically there. He's still on the island of Patmos where he's receiving the revelation. So he's transported in his spirit into the wilderness. The wilderness is a desert, much like the area where modern Babylon is located in Iraq. He sees a woman on a beast. And the woman is this apostate religion. She is the false church of end times. She's riding on a beast. The beast is uh, the, the last one world empire. The description of the beast is one of great opulence and wealth. It's scarlet in color. Scarlet is also associated with sin in Isaiah 118, where Isaiah, the Lord says, Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. The woman is also clothed in scarlet and purple. So not just the beast, but the woman is dressed with gold and gems and pearls. Again, a sign of, of luxury, of wealth. Dr. Stuart Custer writes, This is a gross picture of ecclesiastical prostitution. And then he says, one cannot help but think of the magnificent splendor of St. Paul's Cathedral in Rome with the faithful lined up by the hundreds waiting to kiss the toe of the image of St. Peter. I don't know if you've ever been to that, that cathedral or not, but you can look it up online as you can anything else nowadays, and it's amazing to see the opulence, the wealth of a building. Walvard says the primary reference is not to ancient Babylon, but to Babylon perpetuated in apostate Christendom, especially in its future form. So all of this is going to be a future religion. Um, the golden cup that she holds is, is said to be full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. An image that she drinks from this cup of abomination, but she's never satisfied. False religions and religions of works will never leave the worshiper satisfied. They always have to do something more. What if I left something out? What if I didn't do enough? They'll always be thinking they have to be doing more to ensure their eternity. Her name is said to be on her forehead. This is not the first time we've seen something marked on the forehead in the book of Revelation. But here it's something that is, uh, that is stamped on the most obvious part of her face. And when God looks at her, he, he sees what she is. Her name, as all other times in scripture we find the word name, it's talking about her character. And the text 
capitalizes all the letters, in, in my Bible anyway, in the name that is on this woman's forehead. Mystery. Mystery in the Bible is something before concealed that's now revealed, made known. So she's fooled many to follow her evil ways in the name of religion, but eventually the mystery is revealed and the false world religion is not God's. It's satanic. It cannot save. So this mystery. Also the name on her forehead is Babylon the Great, a symbol of everything that is against God. God is the one who's great. I love the child's prayer. God is great. God is good. Uh, the mother of harlots, the abomination of the earth. As a mother, she is the matriarch of the false religion and blasphemous worship. An abomination is, is something that, that God detests. And John responds at the end of that in verse 6 by saying, I wondered with great admiration. Now that doesn't mean that he admired her in the way he wanted to, to, to follow her. It means that he he was amazed with much amazement. Same word that's repeated there. Let's go now to the beast in verses 7 through 12. The angel will explain the mystery. So John isn't left wondering with this amazement. The angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? Why were you amazed? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carried her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. He will explain to John the mystery of the woman. He will also explain the mystery of the beast with seven heads and ten horns. So the explanation, verses 8 through 12. The beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, that they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. We're reminded about the beast, the Antichrist, who faked his death and resurrection. Verse 8 starts uh, with, this beast was and is not and shall ascend. Verse 8 ends with, they beheld the beast that was and is not and yet is. So this beast existed, looked like it came to an end, and then was revived or appeared again just as the Antichrist who faked his death and the false prophet had the people make an image to him after he was uh, resurrected to worship him because of his apparent return to life. So this kingdom, this beast, that political system will appear to be revived. And often it's called the revived Roman Empire. John Walvoord writes, the supernatural survival and revival of both the world ruler and his empire will impress the world as being supernatural and will lead to worship of the beast and Satan. Next in this section, we see that the beast will ascend out of the pit, the, the bottomless pit, literally the pit of the abyss. Uh, that's the place where Satan and his demons stay. They abide there. Uh, Primarily, uh, we, we've looked at this word beast. In fact, we saw it in Revelation chapter 4, and Dr. Custer talked about it being just a living creature there, a beast or at the throne of, of the Lord. In Revelation 9-11, Satan is the beast who ascended out of the pit. 
In Revelation 11:7, the beast is the world ruler, so the Antichrist is called the beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And now the beast is the one world political system. So this is the same beast as uh, Daniel prophesied, the fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. The last world empire, the last ruler, is uh, the little horn of Daniel 7, 8, who is the Antichrist. So this one world system will go into perdition. The word perdition is a word we read in John chapter 3, verse 16. And it's the word perish, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It's, it's that rotting fruit. It's a, it's a final destruction. And so this one world system will go into that um, perdition. The ones on the earth who are believers, are, are, have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They will have been raptured, or their names are written as they believe during the tribulation period. But the names here of unbelievers will wonder. Um, their names are not in the Book of Life. And they'll be, they'll be that word wonder, the same word we saw before, on amazement. Um, the identity of the beast's seven heads and ten horns are given. In verses 9 through 11, we see these seven heads. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Again, those people that say the seven hills of Rome. And there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is. And the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And the beast that was and is not, and he is the eighth and is of the seven, uh, and goeth into perdition. So the seven heads are seven mountains, this, the text says. Um, probably better to see those seven hills of Rome. Uh, people have, have thought it's that, but probably better to see seven individuals who rule the kingdoms, and that's what we read in verse 10, uh, seven, uh, these, these seven kings. Five of the kings have fallen, one is, and the seventh is yet to come. So when John was writing, five world empires had already fallen. John was writing, he was on the island of Patmos. Who had put him there? What, what uh, government? Rome. Okay, so Rome is the one that now is. But the ones that had fallen were Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Uh, and the future world, em world empire will be the seventh. Okay, the seventh head. There have been other kingdoms in the world that have been opposed to God. Morris explains why these six are identified as the six world empires mentioned here. He says all six of these were not only legitimate heirs of political Babel, but also of religious Babel as well. Babylonia, Egypt, Assyria, Persia, Greece, and Rome were all strongholds of the world religion of evolutionary pantheism and idolatrous polytheism. Thus, they're appropriately represented as six heads on the great beast that supports the harlot. In verse 11, there's a little bit of a difficulty here. The last ruler is called the eighth beast, who is one of the seven. Uh, Walford gives a, a great possible explanation of there, explaining how there are only seven, but now you have an eighth. 
He says, the seventh beast itself is the Roman Empire, marvelously revived in the end time, and the eighth beast is its final ruler. Um, so that eighth beast is the Antichrist, will go into destruction when he's thrown into the lake of fire. That uh, is, a, is a great uh, uh, clear passage in Scripture, two, two verses in Revelation that tell us about when the beast and the false prophet and Satan himself are cast into that bottomless pit or the lake of fire. In Revelation 19.20, the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the fire burning with brimstone, a lake of fire burning with brimstone. So the lake of fire, the beast, and the false prophet are cast in Revelation 19.20. When you get to Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. They were still there when Satan is cast there, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, let's move to the ten horns in verses 12 to 13. 12 and 13. The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received up, uh, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So these haven't ruled over kingdoms yet. It shows, uh, it says, which have received no kingdom as yet. They will rule all at the same time, simultaneously, under the beast. And the reference to one hour shows that this is a limited time that they'll be in power. They'll have a single purpose, and that is to serve the beast, who's the Antichrist, and to, to uh, advance his kingdom. Okay, are we still here? Let's look at the last point, the battle. And this is the final campaign of Armageddon, the two sides that are in the war, are seen in verse 14. These, that is those, those ten kings that support Antichrist, these shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of Lords. Notice the capital L, uh, the first Lord. He is the capital Lord of Lords. He is the King, capital K, of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Those are believers. Well, these, uh, the ten kings who have no kingdom but rule with the beast in his kingdom, give power and give strength to the beast. They're behind him all the way. And the lamb will overcome all of them. The reason? Because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. Uh, he is not a king among kings and a lord among lords. He is sovereign king over all kings. He is ruling lord over all lords. And those by his side are called, are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. Well, the angel explains what John has seen at the end of the chapter now, verses 15 through 18. And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So again, she was over those people. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall have the 
These shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For the Lord hath put in their heart their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest in that great city, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. So the waters where the, the harlot sits are those, those people of end times who are lost. They're all followers of the one world religion. Uh, this is the largest ecumenical movement ever. And all will be worshipers of that satanic religion. The ten horns are the ten kings that will turn against the one world religion. And as I mentioned, Walver thinks this will take place at the midpoint in the tribulation. The world ruler will set up his throne in the temple on the earth and proclaim to be God. And the ten nations will worship this world ruler uh, known as the Antichrist. Uh, Walvard writes, The world church movement, which characterizes the first half of the seven years leading up to the second coming, is thus brought, in, uh, brought to an abrupt end. It will be replaced by the final form of world religion, which will be the worship of the world ruler, Satan's substitute for Christ. Antichrist means against Christ. It means in the place of Christ. He is that world ruler. And God will move these ten nations to follow Antichrist so that his purposes could be accomplished. Did you notice that? He is still in control of all these world rulers. He is working his will through them, through their hatred. The chapter ends with the angel telling John who the woman is. She's the religious Babylon, the center of the apostate church. Religion and politics will be united in this united effort against, uh, against God, to war against him. Let me remind you how the battle will end. We saw a preview in verse 14. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Isn't it great to be on the Lord's side? Even when the kingdoms of the earth unite in worshiping the Antichrist and unite in political power against God, they will be no match because Jesus is the Almighty. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And if you have not trusted him as your Savior and Lord, I urge you to accept him today. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. He will rule forever. And those who know Christ will be part of that kingdom. We have a wonderful future. Bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we look forward to that day when all of these things will be complete when we're forever in the presence of our Savior. And then until then, until the day that you either rapture us or call us home to be with you, I pray that we'll be faithful in our witness so that none of those people that we see on a daily basis, face to face, will be in this tribulation period at the end times. I pray that they too will accept the Savior that we know and that we love. And so give us an urgency in our, in our lives and in the way that we live and the way that we behave and give us opportunities and help us to take those opportunities 
with a cheerful countenance, with joy in our heart to tell the world that Jesus saves. We pray in his name. Amen.